1: You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I am now joined by the lovely Mark Alley. Do people ever use that adjective to describe you? The lovely? Yeah. All the time. Oh, okay. It's almost just too commonplace. (laughs) The lovely editor-in-chief, Mark Alley. Mark, who is also joining us today.
2: The lovely Melissa Rogers. Uh, Melissa is, now this is a mouthful, so hang on, listeners. A church-state lawyer and non-resident senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. She previously served as a special assistant to President Obama and executive director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. What you're supposed to get out of that is this. Melissa is really smart, has had a lot of experience, and knows a great deal about religious freedom. And that's why we have her on the show.
1: Is that true, Melissa?
3: Well, I have worked in this area for a long time, longer many more years than I'd like to admit. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it's great to be with you all today. Melissa,
1: where are we talking to you from?
3: Uh, I am in Falls Church, Virginia right now. Awesome.
1: I love Virginia. It's a great state. Yep. Okay, so let's get into our discussion for today. Last week, the U.S. Senate confirmed Sam Brownback as America's next ambassador-at-large for international religious freedom. The appointment came six months after President Trump had nominated the former Kansas Republican governor. Brown's position is part of the Office of International Religious Freedom, a State Department office which monitors persecution and discrimination on a global scale. As Christianity Today reported last week, advocates have been eager to see more readiness around religious freedom from the State Department. It's 2017 report on religious freedom violators came several weeks after the congressional deadline, and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was unusually brief in the department's annual assessment of the issue. Tillerson has also controversially proposed combining R-I-F, again, which stands for International Religious Freedom, the office that Brownback now heads with the Office of Religion and Global Affairs, which advises on religious policy and practice. Religious freedom has been a recurring topic on this podcast, as many of our listeners will know, though most episodes have focused on the situation of Christians from particular countries around the world. This week, we'd like to explore how the American government officially promotes freedom of religion around the world and when this mission has been controversial. All right, as everyone knows, this podcast is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. You can get a subscription of that by going to orderct.com slash quicktolisten. Mark, one of the articles that I think that our listeners might really enjoy is this piece that we did on Frederick Douglass and the faith of Frederick Douglass.
2: Yeah, he was a great... A great human being, a great writer, a former slave who uh, became an abolitionist, obviously, after he uh, not obviously, but as as would be expected after he ran to freedom. And uh, I am in the process of reading various classic, Uh, narratives from the 19th century on this topic. I read 12 Years a Slave recently, which was very powerful, and Frederick Douglass's book is in my Kindle to read next. He's just uh, someone you cannot not know something about.
1: Yeah, the topic of our piece is called The Radical Christian Faith of Frederick Douglass the great abolitionists spoke words of rebuke and hope to a slave-holding society. And I think that's really interesting is that you hear a lot of Douglass wrestling with this idea of America being a Christian nation and what that means for the fact that slavery also exists in a country that's a Christian nation. Does that come up in some of the stuff that you've seen?
2: Yes. I mean, uh, we're not the first generation to recognize the great contradiction of the existence of slavery and the Constitution and the uh, Declaration of Independence. This is a long-standing intrinsic contradiction to, to the American experiment, and we're still working it out. Douglas especially does a very eloquent job of addressing that, and something that ought, we ought to be continue to be thinking about.
1: Yeah, I'm really grateful that we have this piece available. So if you'd like to read that, you can go on our website, or again, you can get a copy of our January-February issue, again, by subscribing to Christianity Today. That is orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, so Mark... This is not necessarily like some of the more emotional topics we've explored on the show, but do you have a gut check for this news?
2: Well, my only gut check was when I read he was finally confirmed. It got me to thinking uh, I'd forgotten that he was in the process of confirmation, and I was wondering what the heck took so long about something that doesn't strike me as that controversial. So we'll get into that a little bit of that today. But it did did bring home the notion that while on the one hand I think this is an important office and cause that we should be, you know, enthusiastic about as Christians day to day. It just gets pushed in the background of our of our lives. And that's unfortunate.
1: Yeah, I think I was a little bit surprised, too, that Vice President Pence ended up having to cast a tie-breaking vote oftentimes it seems like when the president is nominating people to these types of positions, they're often kind of like given to that person kind of at the discretion of the president or like the Senate can seem like it's just, you know, oh, all right, let's move on. So I didn't expect it to kind of go down to the wire, like it seems like it did. So I'm looking forward to what our discussion is going to reveal about that. And also as someone who's worked on our news team at Christianity Day for a while, these are offices that I actually had not really heard of that much before I came here but I've learned are actually pretty important when it comes to the work that they do overseas. All right. So, Melissa, it's just really great to have you here to talk about this particular issue. Maybe you can just tell us, to start, what is a typical qualification of America's religious freedom ambassador?
3: You know, this was a position that was created by an act of Congress, actually, the International Religious Freedom Act in um, 1998. And the ambassador is someone who is, you know, the face of this agenda for the United States. So, obviously, this ambassador should have a good understanding of religious freedom as a universal human right and a dedication to promoting that right for all people. And I think, you know, we've been trying to cultivate a kind of understanding that promoting religious freedom for all not only is the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do because it you know, respects the rights of conscience, and it also helps us to achieve some of our foreign policy objectives, because we find when societies embrace religious liberty for all, they reap all kinds of other benefits, like building a more peaceful, just, and stable, and, and even productive society. And so that helps them to prosper. It makes the world a more peaceful and productive place. And Of course, the United States certainly is always working toward that end. So that's a kind of understanding that we've been trying to make sure is imparted um, both inside our own government and in our dealings with governments around the world. I would say that it's also really helpful if the ambassador knows a wide range of leaders in civil society and also knows or is a very quick study about how to operate within the complex bureaucracy that is the State Department and is able to work effectively with the White House, too.
1: I'm just curious, has this person ever been a person that was not a
3: Christian? Actually, uh, Rabbi David Saperstein was the first non-Christian to serve in this position. Um, As you may recall, he was appointed by President Obama during his second term. Previous to that time, there had been several ambassadors, all of whom happened to be Christian.
2: I thought that was especially good move on his part because I've, I have participated in a, a number of Jewish evangelical dialogues, and I will say my Jew, uh, Jewish friends often lovingly get on my case that Christians aren't more concerned about a religious freedom of our fellow believers. And there are times when the Jewish community seems more outraged by what's happening to Christians than Christians do. So I was really happy to hear that uh, uh, Rabbi Saperstein was appointed.
3: Yeah, we were we were really thrilled that um that he was interested in serving and um you know I thought he did a really great job. He's well known to people of all different faiths and and respected and, uh, you know, really could hit the ground running in terms of his knowledge of the issues and his um, connections throughout the religious and human rights community. And that was a great, great boon to us.
1: Yeah. And from what I understand, the current ambassador is the first one
3: to be Catholic. Is that true? I guess that's right. Um, I'm, I'm thinking back about each one and I think that's correct. Yeah interesting um also the first former senator and former governor oh that is interesting,
1: too. So it's Sam Brownback then is a little bit more politically connected and has more political experience than some of these previous ambassadors have.
3: Yeah, I certainly, you know, his experience as an elected person um, distinguishes him from the others. I think, um, for example, I think John Hanford had worked on the Hill as a staffer. So it's not that we haven't had somebody who's who's been in the staff role before, but this was, this is the first person who has held elective office or several elected uh, two elected offices in the Past, at least. He may have held some before he was senator or governor, but at least those two, which are obviously quite important.
1: Mark was mentioning earlier that he was surprised that it, it took a long time for Brownback to be confirmed for this position, which from what I understand, it was about six months. Do you know
3: why there was a delay? Well, let me first say that I don't think six months from nomination to confirmation it is necessarily that uncommon. First, the White House vetting process for a candidate of this kind is lengthy, and then the candidate has to run the gauntlet of Senate confirmation, which is also, you know, a kind of tedious paperwork exercise. In addition to getting on Senate calendars and having the hearing, and then getting to the floor. So six months isn't a terribly long time for all of that to happen. Having said that, you know, I think the time between nomination and confirmation would have been less had there not, you know, been some concerns raised by Democrats about aspects of Senator Brownback's record and his Senate testimony. But, you know, overall, I would say that, you know, that's not an outstanding length of time uh, for a position of this sort to get filled.
2: Now that you've mentioned it, maybe I I was more surprised at the close vote. What was that close vote about?
3: Well, I think that, you know, some, uh, well, it ended up being a party line vote, right? Um, So I think that the Democrats were concerned about some aspects of his record and some of his Senate testimony. You know, that's been an issue that we've tried to deal with as much as possible through this uh, ambassador position. Every, you know, everybody wants for it to be as bipartisan a vote as possible, Um, and that has been difficult to do sometimes, and it it certainly was difficult this this time around.
2: Were there particular issues that he has stood for that were getting in the way of some people's vote?
3: A couple of the issues that were cited were uh, concern about him signing a a law in Kansas that was known as kind of an anti-Sharia law um, that would say that, you know, no foreign law can hold sway in the state of Kansas and was interpreted to be um, an effort, an anti-Sharia measure, which gave some concern about where he would stand on issues of supporting the rights of Muslims. Not that anybody thinks that um, Sharia law should govern in the United States, not at all, but some viewed it as being a concern because it was such a non-issue that um, Sharia law would ever have any place in governing the United States laws, that it was seen as as an effort perhaps to, to stigmatize uh, or Muslim Americans. So that was a concern. And then there was also um you know some concerns raised about his testimony on the Hill uh, during his confirmation hearings about uh, whether there would ever be a religious justification for criminalizing, imprisoning, imprisoning or executing people based on their LGBT status. And you know he answered that question, but there were some Democrats I know felt that the the answer was not as clear and resolute as it should have been. So those were some of the concerns that got raised on the Democratic side about the nomination.
1: Melissa, when we're talking about religious freedom, how is that defined by the State Department?
3: Religious freedom, I think, is defined very broadly by the State Department. Um, The ability to, uh, you know, embrace a faith or not to embrace a faith, the ability to change one's faith, uh, the ability to practice one's faith, not just in private, but in public life. So it certainly includes all those things and more, the ability to gather as a community of faith um, and practice communally in that way. So the definition is also influenced um, by the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which has an expansive definition of religious freedom. And often these days, especially when we're in multilateral settings, it's often defined as the freedom of religion or belief as a nod to the fact that there are also uh, people who are not religious, um, who are protected by religious freedom, and should have the freedom to believe and to follow their consciences as well.
2: So, is there? There, are, sometimes people use the phrase, um, "People should have the freedom to worship." In fact, I recall Hillary Clinton used that in a speech a few years ago, and the religious freedom community was uh, some of some in the community were upset because they saw think there's a difference between advocating for freedom of worship and freedom of religion
3: certainly you know it is it is and should be understood broadly as a as a freedom of religion religious freedom not simply a freedom to worship so you know i think that's uh, that's certainly true i would say at the same time though having worked you know in the government myself you you encounter speechwriters who get tired of saying it the same way every time <laughs> and they'll they'll insert you know freedom of worship, the ability to worship as we see fit as a way of varying the speech. We're editors who write headlines. (laughs) We get it. Yeah. And also we have, you know, of course, uh, Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, talking about the freedom of worship, a kind of historical antecedent for that phrase that speechwriters will also Want to pull on from time to time so and and I think you'll find, for example, that President Trump has said freedom of worship a number of times, so we sometimes see people fasten on that terminology when it comes out of the mouth of some politicians they don't trust and you know, used as a way to say, well, they're trying to narrow our religious freedom. But then when it comes out of the mouth of a politician that they trust, it doesn't bother them and they don't single it out or get concerned about it. So I would urge a little bit of caution um, on that front, because certainly, I think, certainly Secretary Clinton, in my experience, advocated for a broad right of religious freedom. And if she buried it up, it it. it may well have been her speechwriters doing, uh, looking for a little variety rather than any kind of philosophical statement. So I wouldn't read too much into just a simple use of the phrase from time to time.
2: Let me ask a question that those from a different perspective might ask. Aren't we merely imposing our values on other countries when we insist that people practice freedom of religion, especially nations that see themselves, identify themselves as uh, adhering to one religion or another, especially you might think of uh, uh, Muslim countries, for example.
3: You know, I think... We have a history, not just in the United States, but as um, bodies coming together, governments from around the world, peoples from around the world to embrace this as a universal human right. So it's not something, although we're very proud of our own tradition of religious freedom, it's been identified and embraced as something that all people in all societies should enjoy. And so I don't think it's uh, an imposition of our values, but yet a reflection of a very common concern that's treasured by people. Around the world. Also, in our diplomacy, we're careful to recognize that not everybody has to have a system of religious freedom that looks just like our own. But we want to encourage, um, you know, certain kinds of uh, practices and values, ensuring that people aren't persecuted for their faith, ensuring that people are not, um, you know, are not uh, directed by their government to uh engage in certain religious practices or not to engage in religious practices so you know our state department doesn't tell people you have to adopt the united states system in order for us to stop nagging you Instead, we try to say, you know, how can you move toward a system of religious freedom that, you know, would be one that makes sense for your country and one that would um, recognize these very fundamental rights of conscience? And what do you have to say to us about our own system? How can we work together to promote greater respect for the rights of conscience around the world? So there's a sensitivity to the fact that. We need to engage in dialogue. We need to work multilaterally, and we need to work in a way that um, really shows that we're listening uh, to people and trying to reach across differences.
2: I would assume that context would also make a difference. I was in Morocco for a conference in uh, Rabat, but where, when, when, when did I do that? So, last year. Last year, sometime. Yeah, in the fall. Anyway, uh, they, Morocco is very proud of its religious freedom stance. Mm -hmm. right, And so I took the trouble to actually read their laws. And by American standards, it's not nearly as free as we would want it to be. But I don't think anyone makes too big of a fuss over it, because in the context of the larger Islamic community and what what some uh, Muslim countries do insist on and demand of their citizens. It it is relatively free and very free in a lot of ways. So I assume that makes a difference too, in terms of
3: how we work with countries? Yes. I mean, we certainly want to see if there's a problem, we want to see movement in the right direction and want to encourage that movement. And, you know, you reference uh, Morocco. I'm sure you're aware of the Marrakech Declaration about uh, calling on um, Muslims, calling on other uh, Muslims to protect the rights of non-Muslims in their own countries. And so there's, you know, there's a lot to be encouraged by.
2: Yeah, I should have mentioned that was the context of the conference, why it was held there. Oh,
3: okay. <laughs> yeah,
2: was the Marrakech yeah. Declaration, Great. correct? Exactly, yeah.
3: Yeah, and, you know, there's a coming, there's an, uh, an effort to promote that declaration in new ways uh, just coming up in Washington. So, you know, that declaration continues to have a lot of steam behind it.
0: This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, Are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited, customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started
3: at churchsalary.com. I'm just trying
1: to get a sense of how this works in the State Department when advocating for religious freedom may or may not sometimes be a competing priority to other things that the State Department or the current administration may be trying to advance. The thought that comes to mind, I guess, though, maybe no one predicted, was just the fact that the Iraq War led in many ways to seeing a lot of Christians leave Iraq, Christian communities that had been there for thousands of years. When when these types of conversations are being had and people are talking about the intended and potentially unintended consequences of things Is the goal of this like religion freedom ambassador to sit in these meetings and then kind of advocate for those communities and what might happen to them as a result of other foreign policy decisions that are getting made?
3: Yeah, I think it is to take a really holistic approach, um, not to have religious freedom sort of over there in a little silo, but rather to think about how do we integrate religious freedom into the work of statecraft? How do we make sure that it is integrated into the overall national security strategy. So, you know, this has long been an aim and still continues to be a task for the State Department and for the National Security Council to make sure that religious freedom becomes an integral part of their work. And uh, having people at the table who understand the religious facets of the landscape that they're working in, so we don't have, you know, things that surprise us that seem to come out of nowhere when we're doing foreign policy, so that we are actually thinking about how do we make religious freedom part of the package of things that we want to talk to other nations about. How do we make it integral to those discussions, not something that's just an add-on?
2: Yeah, I should say, uh, I think the state, this is not news and it's not a uh, backhanded criticism, but it's been true for decades that the State Department can be tone deaf to the vitality and importance of religion in people's lives. I remember I went to a Muslim U.S. conference in, um, where was that? That was Doha? Anyways, in the Middle East, and uh, there was this discussion among people about whether the religious concerns of, in this particular case, Muslims of a certain region were whether we should take their religious concerns seriously or we should just interpret them as uh, economic complaints about not getting a fair deal. And it just struck me as a good example of the inability to actually listen and hear people, that for people their religion and their religious concerns are sometimes more important than economic.
3: I certainly believe that we can't understand our nation or our world without understanding religion. So we don't equip our diplomats well when we send them out. Without some kind of understanding of the religious facets of landscape in which they're working, that just handicaps them. They can't see something that's important um, and that they should be aware of. Not in terms of you know they don't have to take any devotional perspective towards it, but they have to take they have to have a kind of religious literacy, if you will. And um, so that's one of the things that uh, the State Department has been working on, not without some challenges for the some of the reasons that you mentioned. Some in foreign policy apparatus. Are- uncomfortable discussing religion. They think it's it's complicated, and it is, and they think it's combustible, and it is, but they think that they can just avoid it. But, you know, I think Secretary Kerry put it well when he said, we ignore the global impact of religion at our peril. You know, if we ignore it, it's gonna it's gonna come back in some way <laughs> to uh, to haunt us and you know our, our ignorance will haunt us so you know we really need to pay attention to it in a way that's um, informed and in a way that's constructive and certainly consistent with our religious liberty guarantees you know I, I think another kind of concern that we sometimes have heard is that an effort to be mindful about religion or to work on religious freedom would somehow violate the First Amendment or the separation of church and state. And, you know, I think that's just wrong. Um, You know, the separation of church and state is is a time-honored and cherished principle, but it doesn't bar conversation and in many forms of collaboration between the government and religious communities. And it doesn't bar, uh, you know, the State Department from educating diplomats about how they, you know, deal with the religious aspects of their areas, their countries or their regions where they're working. That's something that we have to work on sometimes because people have a wooden understanding of separation of church and state that communicates to them we can't talk about it I don't think that's a helpful approach or one that is a good understanding of separation of church and state instead it means that you know the government doesn't uh, promote religion doesn't force religion on anybody, uh, but we can promote religious freedom and we can promote religious literacy just as we promote in our public schools many times teaching about religion so that we can understand the role that religion has played in our own country. And another pushback that you sometimes get is the fear that religious freedom issues are really just efforts to privilege the rights of Christians over the rights of people of other faiths and beliefs. And I think there it's incumbent on all of us, especially those of us who are Christian, to make sure that we are promoting always equal rights to religious freedom, that we are looking out for everyone and their rights of conscience, whatever faith they choose or reject even. You know, that's part of religious freedom too, being able to reject faith. So, you know, it's a, a continuing job to make sure that the Religious Freedom Initiative is understood and actually practiced in such a way that it very carefully protects the rights of all people in a very uh, even-handed way.
1: I think that you're right to talk about that tension that there is in regards to whether these offices privilege Christians or not. And I've seen some version of this criticism talked about, especially when someone like the current vice president has, who has made um, religious freedom an important part of what he wants to be about um, when he's been Um, visiting other countries this year, but the sense that because Christians make up the majority of the faith group here in the United States, that when we're speaking out for Christians overseas, somehow it's kind of some form of nepotism, if you will, even though, you know, as, as we've kind of explored on this podcast at various times, Christians are really intensely persecuted overseas. Um, and so trying to figure out how to balance the, the dual realities um, with those things is probably something that the ambassador has to be pretty sensitive to.
3: Yes, I think so.
2: Again, in conversation with my Jewish friends, they are uh, sometimes mystified why we aren't more vocal when fellow Christians are being persecuted overseas and more more aggressive uh and i i try to explain that some of the tensions involved and one of them being we don't want to be seen as being us uh, only concerned about our our own people our fellow religionists and to the to which they respond well if you aren't f- going to be defending their rights who is
3: <laughs> so it, it
2: it is a it is a tension
3: and i think some groups do that very well you know they certainly Raise issues that Christians are facing. And in the very next uh, paragraph, they're talking about the Rohingya or, you know, someone else, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Buddhist or Baha'i or whatever. They are careful to show that their concern, while they're raising concerns about Christians, they're very careful to also raise concerns about other people of faith, because, of course, you know, the right to religious freedom is indivisible when anybody's religious freedom is undermined, it, it jeopardizes everybody's right to religious freedom. And, and you know, we know that every religion is a minority somewhere. So, you know, when we protect the rights of my, religious minorities in our own country, we strengthen our hand to protect the rights of religious minorities in other countries, which, you know, Religious Christians aren't a religious minority in the United States, but when we protect religious minorities here, then when we go to other countries where Christians are the minority, we can point back to what we've done in our own country to protect religious minorities here as a way of showing them that we are actually taking a principled stand here. And I've seen that really have an impact on people um, when we do our diplomacy. And uh, and that ends up, you know, redounding to the benefit of everyone, including persecuted Christians in Muslim-majority countries.
1: Melissa, you mentioned that Sam Brownback's current ambassador position was something that was created back in 1998. How long would you say, though, that the State Department has advocated for religious freedom in one sense or another?
3: Well, you know, it certainly predates that position, because you know this idea of religious freedom as a universal human right goes far back. I, I couldn't tell you exactly how far back, but for example, the um, UN Declaration of Human Rights that I was referencing earlier was formalized in 1948, and it includes an article supporting freedom of religion and belief. And the State Department generally has promoted the values of freedom um, around the world going very far back. So, you know, I think it became formalized with the 1998 Act, but it certainly didn't begin then. It just took on a more formal, official form at that time.
1: One thing I wanted to talk about briefly was just strategy. You know, I think that there's, when you're in the working in the State Department, there's always various carrots and sticks that you're using to try to incentivize countries to act in different ways. And so, obviously, the United States gives billions of dollars in aid around the world. Every year and I've noticed that another kind of thing that people will talk about when a country puts pressure on a particular place is sometimes if they bring it up in an official you know remarks that they're giving, overseas, or it seems like another one, obviously, kind of more punitively would be sanctions. And I guess the the one of the most important things to bring up is that um, we talked earlier about this report that is put together, too, on religious freedom violators. So maybe you could just kind of run through some of the strategies that are used and which ones are kind of the most popular today.
3: The strategies have become more formalized as well through the the report on international religious freedom that comes out of the State Department, and this is a report that supplements the most uh, the, the human rights report, which is more general general in nature. And the International Religious Freedom Report also came out of the um, 1998 Act. And it's a way, as you can imagine, of drawing attention each year to, you know, what's going on across the world, um, where are the problems, how have they compared to the, the previous year. And then they also put pressure for the State Department and the USG to think about how it's going to Um, react, what kind of sanctions it's going to put, how it's going to classify the countries, if they're going to be classified as countries of particular concern um, known as CPCs. Those are countries that you know commit systematic and ongoing and egregious violations of religious freedom. And if they are so designated, then you know they can be subject to sanctions, like economic sanctions and the like. But you're right; there are a whole bunch of different kinds of carrots and sticks that can be used: public or private condemnations, delay or cancellation of scientific or cultural exchanges, um, you know, the granting or the denial of state visits, suspension, or withdrawal of state aid, a U.S. state aid, and a whole a whole host of things. So, you know, there are lots of tools in the toolkit, and there are continuing efforts to figure out exactly what is going to work best in a particular country. How is How are we going to achieve our aims? And this can include not just policies of the country, but, you know, we felt we have faced in recent years um, situations where people are holding uh, American citizens captive um, because of their religious practices. And so we have to think about the best way to, you know, put pressure on those nations so that we get um, those people back.
1: I think Turkey would be probably one example of that right now, where they've been holding the American pastor for almost a year, I believe.
3: Yeah. And, you know, there's, um, when I was at the White House, uh, they were holding... Uh, Pastor Saeed Abedini. Um, and uh, we had to work on that situation. North Korea was holding another um, American who was imprisoned for the practice of his religious beliefs, Kenneth Bay. And I was very proud that by the end of the time, you know, I ran my time at the White House um, through the work of the administration in many different ways. Kenneth Bay was released and then um, Pastor Abedini was released by Iran. So it's wonderful to see those people come back home. Um, that's a very important part of our work as well. And you know, the, the strategies more broadly um, are, you know, a balance of kind of what's often called, you know, a name and shame approach where you're actually naming them publicly shaming them for what they're doing. But then, you know, trying not to let that be the only tool in your toolbox, because, you know, that's not the best way to accomplish a lot of goals uh, many times. So what are the other tools? What are the ways of working behind the scenes, working through? persuasively to encourage better conduct. So we see that kind of tension as well. And also an effort just to, again, make sure that we're embedding the strategy of promoting religious freedom into the overall national security strategy.
1: Mosa, could you give us one or two examples of where the American government has actually been successful in promoting religious freedom?
3: Um, sure. Uh, you know, there are so many efforts that I can mention but um I've already mentioned you know the efforts to free individual prisoners of conscience around the world. Um, We also have, uh, by the time that I finished up my time in government, we had established new capacity within the office of the State Department by adding a special advisor for religious minorities in the Near East and South and Central Asia. My friend Knox Thames holds that position now that helps to ensure that the urgent needs of religious minority communities in those areas are taken into account. Um, We also have dramatically increased our training of American diplomats on religious freedom. And the Office of International Religious Freedom today has more staff, resources, and program funds than at any time since the creation of the office in 1998. Um, We also work, you know, in, in a variety of ways in various countries around the world. Um, both in a multilateral and in a um, you know a bilateral fashion to improve the conditions for religious freedom. So in the Central African Republic, for example, the Department of State has supported early warning programs to increase effective communication and community resilience across religious lines. And the Department of State has, through a grant, empowered NGOs and national, um, non-governmental organizations in Eastern and Central Europe to monitor anti-Semitic and ex- Expression that appears in traditional and new media. Um, so there's just, you know, a long list of things that we've done in various countries. The strategy is certainly multi-pronged and it involves work with government to government and also um, Government working with our own civil society organizations and civil society organizations within the particular countries uh, where we are um, operating and trying to have more dialogue.
2: Let me ask one more question, just a little more personal, and that is: I mean, why is religious freedom? I mean, obviously, you've given your a large part of your life to this issue and this cause. So as a Christian, why is this so important to you? Why, have you? why is this close to your heart?
3: Yeah, well, I believe that religious freedom is not only a universal human right, it's also a gift from God. And when that right is protected, then people can make choices in matters of faith. And that's what makes our faith meaningful, right? <laughs> the fact that we made a choice to follow God is what makes it meaningful for us. It makes our faith authentic. It makes it meaningful, and it, it makes it vital. And so I, I truly believe that God made us with the ability to respond and to make a choice. So as both an American and a Christian, I want everybody to be able to respond to their conscience, and I want everyone's government to protect them in doing so. And um, so certainly for all those reasons, um, as well as you know the fact as we talked about earlier that religious freedom i believe is indivisible and when we you know protect everybody's right to religious freedom uh, that's how we um, really succeed in this area when christians speak out um, on behalf of other religious groups we honor the principles of religious freedom, the rights of conscience, and we protect our, uh, you know, other Christians in other lands, because maybe they will see our example, for example, in the United States, when they see Christians speaking out for the rights of Muslims, we may prompt Muslims to speak out on behalf of Christians. And so it all, I think, works together for good, if you will.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Melissa, it was just... So great to get all this perspective and um, really fill in some gaps, I think, that when we talk about religious freedom advocacy, we don't always know exactly what we're talking about. So I really appreciate your expertise here. As a reminder to everyone listening to this podcast, if you have feedback or more questions, you can send them to us on Twitter. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone shares something that is bringing them joy. This week, on some level, Mark, are you ready?
3: Yep.
2: All right. What's bringing me special joy is reading uh, a novel I've been intending to read for many years now. I've seen the seen each version of the movie, but the novel is so much better.
1: Are you going to tell us what it is?
2: True Grit. Really? It's just a really entertaining novel. Partly the reason why the novel is so interesting is that the lead character, Maddie, she's a devout Christian. She's a Calvinist. (laughs) She (laughs) believes in election. (laughs) She quotes scripture. So she's this obstinate, stubborn, strong-willed young woman who has this other dimension of her character that the movies didn't portray. So it just gives her, it gives her character just a much more dynamism. It's a very interesting, very interesting novel.
1: Where can people find you outside of this?
2: They can find me by subscribing to The Galley Report, which can be found at christianitytoday.com slash Report G-A-L-L-I. And that's a newsletter I put out in which I link to four or five stories uh, every week and comment on them.
3: Awesome. Melissa? So uh, I just came back from Arizona. Um, I was at Arizona State University uh, with the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict out there. And I just had a wonderful dialogue with Pete Wehner, who worked for the Bush administration and then for the Reagan administration before that. And uh, it was just a great time to, um, you know talk about our various experiences in the White House and to think about, you know, all the things that do bring us together across party lines. Um, You know, we're talking about the president's uh, program, President Bush's program for um, combating AIDS and HIV, and also talking about President Bush's um, visit to, speaking of our topic today, a visit to a mosque uh, in Washington. You all may remember that right after 9-11 that really, I think, saved the lives. and and sent a great signal about protecting religious freedom for everyone and not, um, you know, holding the uh, entire Muslim community responsible for the acts of a few evil people. So, um, you know, and then we were talking about President Obama's programs as well, including his My Brother's Keeper initiative and and other things that um, people can just embrace across party lines. And it just reminded me of that, the importance of coming together across party lines, especially in such a polarized age. And I just hope we're able to do that a lot more in um, in the near future. So that really, uh, that was a positive and, and very um, hopeful experience for me this week.
1: Are you online or on Twitter or anything?
3: I am on Twitter and under my name, at Melissa Rogers.
1: Wonderful. So my precious moment is not exactly something that is bringing me joy in some of the ways that I've used that before on the show, but I had the opportunity to interview Rachel Denhollander this week. She is a gymnast, and she is notably the first gymnast who decided to use her name publicly to call out um, Team Dr. Larry Nasser for sexually abusing her her. And the interview that I did with Rachel earlier this week is has been published by CT this afternoon. And it's been just really, it makes me feel happy to, again, work at Christianity Day where we can be a place to both challenge and encourage people. And I think that this interview with Rachel manages to do both. There's a lot of stuff that I think is really important for all of us as Christians, just to ask about ourselves, particularly around the blind spots that we can have as a community in times where we can really just be deaf to um, the voices that are trying to speak, and in this case, kind of really awful horrors at times, um, and just knowing what exactly can contribute to that, which is really important. Anyway, that interview is on Christianity Today's website right
3: now. I read that earlier today, and it is a fantastic interview. Um, I hope that everyone reads it because it is very powerful. I'm so glad that you followed up with her um, and had that conversation.
1: Yeah, I was going to say my takeaway that I've been telling people is that to get this interview, I texted her husband on four different days to see if I could make this happen. And finally, it ended up working out. So there was a little bit just like, okay, all right, it's okay to be what I think I called it being like a pleasant nag to people.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, good for you. It was certainly worth it.
1: Yes, I definitely agree. So anyway, I invite people to read that on the website, and I'll probably post it in the show notes as well. Um, And people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you so much, Melissa, for coming on. And thank you, everyone else, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts. And if you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts, we ask that you rate and review the show. We can tell that we've been having an upsurge in listeners recently. And thank you so much to everyone who has found the show and has decided to add it to their weekly playlist queue. This podcast is available not only on Apple Podcasts, though, but also on SoundCloud and wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred, and we will see you next week. Thanks, everybody.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bao's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman, to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.